Here's the big question we present to you today on Grow in Grace. Why is there so much pain in the world? Is God really in charge? If he's in charge, why doesn't he fix everything? He will. It's coming soon. Who's in charge here, planet Earth, right now? Who's in charge of your life? That's the message underneath all this. Zion, now filled with hands, and in this place God will dwell with man. Sick be healed and the crippled stand, singing hallelujah. My kingdom built with the blood of my son, selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love, and harmony. I said, let this world know me by your love. Hi there, and welcome to Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. Now, if you're a regular listener, you know that we've been spending a good deal of time in the Gospel of John. What an amazing account this is. It's filled with the miraculous works of Jesus Christ and offers intimate glimpses into the heart of God. Today, Pastor Ed Ray will share a message centered around the arrest of Jesus. Now, we've all heard of stories of unjustified arrest, but this takes the cake. Turn to chapter 18 as we join... Pastor Ed for today's edition of Grow in Grace. We're up to John chapter 18 this morning. Familiar story, Jesus is headed towards the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered, and Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he had said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Probably a lot humbler the second time. I told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. That the same might be fulfilled, which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having his sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? And then the detachment of troops and the captains and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Let's stop there and pray. Lord, thank you for keeping this story in place for us that we might be able to read and consider all that would happen that night in the garden. Help us to see that you are in charge in our lives too. Speak to us now. Send your Holy Spirit and teach us, we ask in Jesus' name. And all God's people agreed by saying, Amen. Well, we've been studying through Jesus' final sermon to his disciples. It started way back in John chapter 13, and this is just a continuation of it. 
It began in the upper room, and some people call this the Last Supper sermon, but it goes from the upper room across the city of Jerusalem, and then through the, really it's the valley, Jehoshaphat, and into the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus has been teaching his disciples for the last time. So these are his last words in a message form. Of course, they're saying seven of them from the cross too. So he started with showing them servanthood in the Last Supper, you'll remember. He got down on his knees and he washed his disciples' feet when none of them would step up and do it. So rather than teach on it, he did it visually. Then he began to speak as they left the upper room and moved across the city of Jerusalem to them about various important matters that they were going to be facing. When they came to the area around the temple, he began to speak to them about the necessity of staying connected to him. And there was a vine, we know, on the doors of Herod's temple of solid gold. And it was probably somewhere near that that he stopped and said, I am the vine and you are the branches and you can't bear fruit without staying connected to him. And so he's teaching his way across the city. They come now to the Eastern gate and overlooking the area that he would die in, including the Mount called Moriah, or we know it as Calvary, he began to pray. And so chapter 17 is a prayer, the Savior's prayer, and some call it the most important prayer in the entire Bible. And so when he finishes that prayer, we break into this verse 1 of chapter 18, and it begins to talk about this final few moments of being with his disciples. Now, the Garden of Gethsemane has been there virtually untouched for 2,000 years, This section breaks up into three parts. The garden itself, the first four verses weren't introduced to it. And then this statement, I am. And it's pretty profound because we get a feel for the power, the strength of the Messiah. All he does is utter these words and a tenth of a legion of Romans hit the ground. That's kind of exciting. My favorite part of this section. And then uh, Peter decides to use his sword for God. And many people have misunderstood that sort of idea, but that's our 10 through 13, the end. So that's where we're going. Fasten your seatbelts. I entitled it, Who's in Charge? Because that's a really important question. It's an important question for each one of us. Who's in charge of our life? But it's an important question when it comes to companies, to schools, to businesses, to churches. Somebody is in charge. Who's in charge here? Jesus, we hope. That's the plan anyway. We're trying to hear him, working hard at that. So when it comes to families, they work well when the parents are in charge. It's not always true today. I was talking with a young couple who have daughters that are just becoming teenagers, and they said, "Um, we've decided we're not going to have any children and we're going to tell them after supper tonight. So uh, that's what happens when you have teenagers, you know. Who's in charge here is regarding Israel and the world. Because the Jewish leaders thought they were in charge. And if you're just joining us, we notice that John uses the word Jews 
as a term of a description of the leadership of the temple. John himself was a Jew racially. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the leaders that took the law and embedded in it all their own traditions. In fact, Jesus said, you think the traditions of men are more important than the law of God. So you will see that term come up. Don't be offended by that. Who's in charge? Who's in charge of your life? Who's in charge of here? Now, years ago, when I was an atheist and a scientist, I liked to read people that I agreed with. I guess that's normal for all of us. But H.G. Wells was a favorite author of mine, novelist, and he wrote War of the Worlds and a lot of other things. But he described the scene that we're looking at in terms that were not encouraging, that are not pro-God. In fact, I don't want you to be offended, but I want you to see where all this line of thinking goes. He said, the world is like a great theater production, a stage that's managed and directed by God. When the curtain rises, you see a perfect set and resplendent characters. Everything goes well until the leading man steps on the hem of the leading lady's gown, causing her to trip over a chair, which knocks over a lamp, and then pushes the table into a wall, which in turn knocks over the scenery, which brings everything down on the heads of the actors. Meanwhile, he says, behind the scenes, he envisions God running around, shouting orders, and trying desperately to restore order from chaos. But alas, God is unable to put things right, he wrote. According to him, God is small and limited. So my question to you is, how big is your God? H.G. Wells has a little God. He thinks God is incapable of doing some things because he doesn't know Scripture and didn't know it. And we find that in other works, strangely in The, the Wizard of Oz. You, I know it's a favorite movie for a lot of people, so I'm going to get cards and letters about this. This classic old movie that describes Dorothy, you'll remember, with her friends, Tin Man, etc., and they go to the wizard's place. The wizard has a big display of his face, and it's green, and it's misty, and there's sounds of thunder and lightning and static electricity, and it looked like he had a lot of power until her little dog Toto went over and pulled back the curtain. And it was a little old man hunched over a console pushing buttons and talking into a megaphone. Well, he didn't have any real power. It looked like he did. It seemed like it. What's going on here? Who's in charge? And it was a shot at God that the world is filled with so many difficult situations. Why did the innocent suffer? I get questions like that from people all the time. Why is there so much pain in the world? Is God really in charge? If he's in charge, why doesn't he fix everything? He will. It's coming soon. So, who's in charge here, planet Earth, right now? Who's in charge of your life? That's the message underneath all this. You're listening to a message based in John 18, from Pastor Ed Ray on Growing Grace. Here's Pastor Ed with more, picking up in verse 1. Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, what words? The prayer, chapter 17. 
he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, we know from the other Gospels, three other Gospels, that this is the Garden of Gethsemane. And he focuses on the brook Kidron because that little stream is actually a dry stream bed except during the rainy season. The word Kidron means misty or dark and gloomy. And it was that night because that's the drain from the Temple Mount and it's Passover, you'll remember. And so lambs are being slaughtered up in the temple and are being washed and all the wash water comes down through this brook called gloomy and it's a very strong picture here josephus 30 years later the historian said that he visited during passover and counted the number of lambs sacrificed at 256,000 lambs so that was a bloody mess coming down through this valley that Jesus stepped over, knowing it was coming down from the same mountain that he would be crucified on outside of the city walls. So he is in this garden. Gethsemane means olive press. And if you go today, and by the way, you should go to Israel. Every believer should. It'll just set in your mind where everything sits. And when you visit the garden they call it Gethsemane. We think it's the right one. It might be off, but only by a, a few hundred feet or something in either direction. But at the back of it, there's this giant round stone that is a weight for crushing olives. That's what Gethsemane means. And so they would put the olives in sacks, kind of like gunny sacks we have today. And then this stone would press down and it would release all the oil, the olive oil, that, of course, we eat. But in their day, it was used a lot for lighting, for having light in your home. So the picture here is interesting to me. This is not named in the Gospel of John. Gethsemane isn't named, but it is in the other three, so we know it's this olive press. Why did John leave it out? I believe it's because John is trying to draw our attention to it's a garden. And there was another garden. And these are the bookends of the book called the Bible. There was a garden called Eden. And it was a perfect place. When people ask, well, why does God leave the world the way it is? Well, it isn't the way he made it. The way he made it, it was absolutely beautiful, stunning. And Adam walked with God in the cool of the evening. It was a wonderful place. So much so if you go to Israel today and you pass a Jew on the streets, they'll say to you, Shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace. And the correct tourist answer is Shalom. You give them one back. And then if they're pleased that you're there, they'll say Shalom, Shalom. And if you're really good, you'll triple it. You know, that kind of thing. But for them, it isn't the word peace in the, the way we mean it in the English language, that is absence of strife. For them, it means literally back to the garden. Shalom to you. May your day be like a day in the garden of Eden walking with God in perfect harmony, without any pressures, without any strife. So I think that's what's going on here in John's mind as he writes this. 
Eden was light. It was inviting. Gethsemane was dark and foreboding. The conflict of Eden took place in the daytime. The conflict of Gethsemane took place at night. In Eden, God sought Adam. In Gethsemane, God the Son sought God the Father. In Eden, Adam spoke with the enemy, Satan. In Gethsemane, Jesus spoke with his Father. In Eden, that Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, Jesus agonized over the suffering for that sin and sin in general. In Eden, Adam fell before Satan. In Gethsemane, the soldiers fell before Jesus. In Eden, Adam took the fruit. In Gethsemane, Jesus received the cup from his father's hand. In Eden, Adam hid himself from God. In Gethsemane, Jesus boldly showed himself. In Eden, the sword was drawn to block Adam from life. In Gethsemane, the sword was sheathed to perform the way to life in Christ. Out of Eden, God sent Adam. Out of Gethsemane, the soldiers led Jesus. Picture of death through the first Adam, but of life through the last Adam. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, Paul wrote. Before we came to Christ, we had a body that worked, but our soul and our spirits didn't. And then we become born again when we surrender to him and ask him to take our lives. And we are truly born anew. Judas, verse 2. And Judas, dun, 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 who betrayed him, also knew this place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. We're told in Luke 21 that Jesus taught in the temple during the day. And at night, he would go into this garden and pray. He had a specific place where he went and prayed. That should be a clue to us for our own lives, that we would pick a spot, some place where you feel comfortable with God. I pray in the same spot, and I have for many years, every morning, same spot. And it is quiet there, and I know I can have a conversation with God uninterrupted. It's usually very early in the morning. Prayer works best when it's a habit that you start in the morning. I get up in the morning, read some scriptures, and then pray. And that's what Jesus is doing. He had a quiet place to pray regularly. We should do the same. Verse 3. Then Judas, having received a detachment of truth. Another one of these kind of hidden things here. The word detachment, aspiro in the Greek language, actually means a cohort. It's a certain number to the Roman legions. A Roman legion from secular history we know was six thousand troops. And this term means one-tenth. So we have all these movies that we've all seen about the garden scene and Jesus in Gethsemane. And it, it shows, you know, a, a dozen soldiers. No, no, no. Six hundred Roman soldiers. Six hundred legionnaires in full battle array with swords and with spears and with the equivalent of their flashlight. It's a little clay container with two holes in it. Out of one comes the, the, the wick, and in the other you pour the oil in. That's all they had. And so they're walking along 
with holding a spear in one hand and their flashlight in the other. And some carried torches, which were probably sticks that were wrapped with leather with bismuth on it, uh, the, their term for tar, a big chunk of tar. And so it was smelly, it was smoking, but it offered light. And they're all carrying weapons, it says. So they had either sword or a spear. And so when they came up to Jesus, verse 4, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things, wow, knowing all things. Why do I try and give God advice? I'm such an idiot. You know, God, if you just do this for me, yeah, Ed, if you want to make God laugh, just tell him your ideas. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward, stepped out in front of the 12 or the 11, and said to them, whom are you seeking? Now, there's a question. There's a question for all of us. Whom are you seeking in your life? Of course, they're looking for him specifically. But again, Jesus knew all what was going to happen, so he's not a caught off guard. This is, he's in complete control of his own destiny. The only person that's ever lived that was in absolute control of his own destiny, every part of it. So there's, this reminds me of another guy who I read in the past before I was a believer. And his name was William Ernest Henley, and he wrote a poem. You've probably not read it, and you haven't missed anything. It's called Invictus. But he was of the opinion that his whole life was controlled by him. He didn't need God kind of a thing. And he said, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be, whatever gods may be, for my unconquerable soul. Confident guy. I have not winced or cried aloud under the budgeoning of chance. My head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond the place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menacing of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. I'm not afraid of God. I don't need God. No matter how straight the gate, that's a direct contradiction to what Jesus said, I am the gate. No matter how straight the gate, how charged the punishment on the scroll, the scroll of God's records of a person, his own sins, he said, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Wow. People today often mistakenly think that they don't need God, and they'll say that out loud. Most eventually realize that we don't have complete freedom. None of us do. We all have limits. I, I know it's very popular to say today, you can be anything you want to be. No, you can't. I'm sorry. You probably will never play Major League Baseball. What? Chromosomes. They entrap us, but they also release us. You got mom and dad, 46 chromosomes. What are you going to do? You can't get another set. can't exchange them. Thanks for joining us for Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. We're going through the Gospel of John together from start to finish. For a CD copy of today's message, just call 844-77-GRACE. That's 844-77-GRACE. Or you can listen online at thepackinghouse.org. 
you'll find an archive of past radio programs there too, which comes in handy should you miss a message on the radio. Go to thepackinghouse.org and look for our radio page. You know, it takes a team to bring Grow and Grace to you, and we look to our listeners to help make all of this possible. We have an exciting resource to tell you about. It's True Spirituality by Francis Schaeffer. After serving the Lord as a pastor for many years, Francis began to wonder if Christianity really made a difference in people's lives. True spirituality, you could say, is the result of his effort to re-examine his faith. And if you want to discover what true spirituality looks like in everyday life, this is the book for you. We'll send you a copy when you support Grow in Grace today with a gift of any amount. And as you give, you'll be helping many others around the country and around the world to grow in grace as well. Just give us a call, 844-77-GRACE. That's 844-77-GRACE. And we want to hear from you, even if you're not in a position to be able to give, whether it's a word of encouragement, a comment related to the study, a question or a prayer request. Email us today at packinghouseradio at aol.com. This program is presented by the Packing House Christian Fellowship in Redlands. Zion, now build with hands and in this place gotta dwell with man. Sit be Son, selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love, and heart.